0: Welcome to the first episode of the relaunched Virago Books Podcast, a monthly celebration of books, reading, and writing, brought to you by Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women. I'm Sarah Savitt, publisher of Virago, and I'm delighted to be introducing this special episode. We're starting our relaunch on a high, with an interview with the prize-winning and beloved writer Sarah Waters. It's 20 years since Sarah published her first novel, Tipping the Velvet with Virago. Tipping the Velvet is a story of passion, music halls, and betrayal, set in a Victorian London which most readers had never encountered. Sarah Waters is one of my favourite writers, and one of the reasons that I and many other people came to work at Virago. I hope you enjoy this interview with her, and then join us monthly for more interviews, debates, and recommendations inspired by our incredible list of women writers from around the world. Virago has been publishing
1: the wonderful Sarah Waters since 2008, when we launched her extraordinary first novel, Tipping the Velvet, and that was an amazing 20 years ago now. I am Lenny Goodings, Virago Chair, and I have been Sarah's editor for the last four novels over the last 16 years, and what a pleasure that has been. Sarah Waters is one of Britain's most acclaimed novelists. All of her novels that followed Tipping the Velvet, which are Affinity, Fingersmith, the Night Watch, The Little Stranger, and The Paying Guess all have been heaped with praise and awards and adapted for theater and film or television. She is one of our best-selling writers, praised by the critics, loved by the readers, and has continued to write novels that lift a veil on unknown history and has become one of the best chroniclers of London. Tipping the Velvet is an exuberant, exultant novel. It's saucy and sensuous, a historical romance which follows the glittering career of Nan King. Oyster girl, turned music hall star, turned rent boy, turned East End Tom, turned feminist. Sarah Waters launches our new Virago podcast. We met to talk about Tipping the Velvet and our 20th anniversary edition, for which she has written A New Afterword. Hi, this is Lenny Goodings, and I'm really thrilled to be sitting with Sarah Waters. We have been publishing Sarah Waters for many, many years, but today we're going to sort of reach back 20 years ago, which is staggering to me, and talk about your first novel, Sarah, Dipping the Velvet.
2: Mm. I know it's staggering to me too, 20 years, and of course it's a bit longer since I actually wrote it. I think I finished it in 95, it was published in 98. So uh it's nearly a quarter of a century really, since not the <laughs> first idea. Where did all that time go? Oh that's a bit scary. <laughs> anyway, it's a
1: good thing to celebrate. It is. It's really a good thing to celebrate. And I I mean one of the things I was very struck by when reading your afterward that you've done for us for our special twentieth anniversary edition, is how you say how much change there's been and it's if you know, when we're in a moment right now with hashtag Me Too and all sorts of things, you know, we sort of feel like, oh my God, can't believe it hasn't changed. But when you think 20 years ago, and you reference that,
2: how much really has changed, actually? An enormous amount has changed. I think in exactly the time that the book has been published, actually, for lesbian and gay people in the UK, you know, I mean, we now take things for granted that were unimaginable um, when I was writing the book. I'm married, you know, to, to my partner, gay parenting, gay rights... As kind of um, you know, consumers or employees or as um, as parents and partners, it's just astonishing, really. And also, I think also just the way in which um, lesbian and gay stuff has and trans stuff has has crossed into the mainstream, into into mainstream culture. So I think still in the in the '90s, it was relatively rare to see, certainly you know, a respectful kind of um, representation of lesbian or gay life, something that felt authentic. Uh, on telly or in film, it was an event. You know, you really kind of seized onto it. But at the same time, um, I remember the the nineties in particular as a time when um, living in London, and that does make a difference. Uh, you know, I could feel very, very sort of certain of my lesbian community, my my larger queer community, and that was an enormous sort of buttress for tipping the velvet in a way. You know, I by the by the time I came to write Tipping the Velvet, which was about ninety five, I think I started it. Um, I'd been reading Lesbian and Gay Fiction for a while because it had been out and about. There'd been lots of Lesbian and Gay and Feminist, including Virago, publishers around, and there'd been Lesbian and Gay bookshops, some of which, at least one of which, Gay's the Word, still exists, you know. So I was able to get hold of this stuff. Libraries were making it available. Um, And I was... Very, very struck by this sort of um, ferment of, of activity around lesbian and gay writing and reading, really you know I felt like I I belonged to a reading community um, and I felt like there were readers there who might like something you know if I had a go at writing um, a lesbian novel, it was it felt very um, like a very welcoming community to aim to please with a book, do you know what I mean? So it was an interesting time, it was the time when things were going to change a few years later, we didn't really know that at the time, but it was the cusp of lesbian and gay life entering the mainstream and, and lesbian and gay people acquiring mainstream rights.
1: And did you feel, it's, it's interesting you said you, feel, um, you felt um, buttressed or sort of comforted or
2: Enabled. Enabled
1: by your own little, by your own community, mm. and I agree. And I was in London at that period too, and it did. But you know, even even then, you felt there were sort of pockets where you could be comfortable. Yes, and there were, were others where you didn't.
2: Oh no, absolutely, which is still the case mm-hmm. in Britain, and is certainly, my goodness, the case across the world. You know, where it is not easy at all um, to be um, a lesbian or gay or, or queer or trans person, um, and the, you know the the rights. And presence we have here in the UK is still unimaginable, you know, in lots of places around the world. No, certainly it was. There were pockets, definitely, but they felt like very empowered pockets Mm. and quite noisy pockets, I suppose, too. That's another thing. I think of the late 80s and 90s as being a great time for kind of queer invasions, you know. I mean, there were literally... I remember lesbians invading the 6 o'clock news and absailing into the House of Lords over Section 28, Clause 28. I mean, how wonderful is that? Um, and there were, you know, billboards were being defaced. Um, there were kiss-ins being organised. Um, there was lots of grassroots direct mm. action taking place. But also, I suppose, kind of more importantly for me really as a reader and a would-be writer, um, I could see queer stuff sort of invading genres, mainstream genres, and I found that really exciting the fact that there were lesbian thrillers lesbian crime novels lesbian sci-fi really good lesbian sci-fi around in the 80s and 90s and you know I used to go and see the lesbian pantomime they had every year at the drill hall in London and it was really it was exciting that they were there but it was exciting to me that they were boldly kind of claiming these genres and I was really interested in 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 how you might invade the past as, as a lesbian or gay person, and so I was reading a lot of lesbian and gay historical fiction, and that had l- I, I ended up writing a PhD thesis on, sort of the idea of lesbian and gay history in um, in fiction and plays and poetry from from about the late Victorian period onwards. You know, because it's always been a vein of of writings. By gay people, or, or you know, writing about homosexuality, um, this appeal to the past—you know, what what, what might mm-hmm. the gay past have been like—and so for me, that idea was really interesting. But also, this idea about taking not just the past but historical fiction—you know, the way we've traditionally written about the past. Yes, um, I was interested
1: that you you say in the in the afterword that you felt you felt excited by the idea that you could prize open the past yes. and sort of re. Either reinsert these stories or find these stories.
2: Yes, because of course that was another thing I could see going on. I suppose with postmodernism and the opening up of sort of the canon of British literature that was happening then. You know, there were there were um, well, there were lots of really interesting historical novels being written. Things like Possession. Um, and novels by um, you know, Peter Ackroyd, Peter Carey, Graham Swift that were really problematizing the past, and not just that, but sort of making us think again about how we talk about the past, how we invent the past every time we we say something about it, and that seemed exciting. But there was all—it was also this sort of—it felt like it was the era of dismantling grand narratives. You know, the, the the grand white narratives, the grand white male narratives that are still, you know, quite rightly very much being. Um, you know, under attack at the moment. I, it felt like it was sort of really a big issue then in in the 90s. Um, and that was definitely a big influence for me too. This, this idea that the past wasn't just, you know, one story or a couple of exclusive stories, but that there were lots of other stories in there too, and that, you know, that now was our time to tell them. And also if we couldn't find them, then we sort of could make them up as well. That felt... <laughs> That felt like a legitimate thing to do. And certainly, Tipping the Velvet is, I always say, it's fantasy history. You know, I mean, I did, it is grounded in the work I'd done, the academic work I'd done into late Victorian culture and it's with its queer underworlds. Um, which I know there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, it was mainly male stuff that's got onto the record. So I suppose with Tipping the Velvet, I wanted to kind of imagine this rich, diverse, Le- uh, Late Victorian lesbian world. But so I let's didn't. go to that because I—I mean, <laughs> I
1: looked at the beginning again just to uh, get myself back into the the voice, which I've forgotten was in first person actually. Oh, uh, yes, interesting. Yes. It's um, anyway, and you've made these incredible characters, Nan King and Kitty Butler, and just talk a little bit about wher- well, where did uh, our Nan come
2: from? Well, I mean. Ha- I was interested in male impersonation. You know, this was something that caught my eye. The fact that it's uh, part of mainstream musical entertainment was uh, women dressing as men. Vesta Tilly was the most famous, but there was also Hetty King, Ella Shields, um, and it was really you know mainstream stuff. And somebody like Vesta Tilly was enormously successful and well loved by her audience, um, and was doing on the surface, you know, perhaps a quite conservative act in the sense that. Um, she was very clearly always a female, and she was she was played a diminutive man. But at the same time, she was often poking fun at men. You know, her songs were very were caric- caricaturing men, really. So she was both kind of claiming the glamour of masculinity, a certain kind of masculinity, and also subtly undermining it, I think. I think her rap was very interesting. And so I just, I mean, to look at those images now, they look like, they look very lesbian to us. They look like drag kings, and of course they didn't look like that. To mainstream viewers at the time, and yet you do sort of get the um, get the feeling that for some viewers there was a kind of queer charge. So, what what were were the
1: mainstream seeing them as when they saw? women dressed in suits. Well, I
2: guess, you know, like when I used to go and see the panto the pantomime when I was a kid, there was still the principal boy, you know, there was just the 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 prince would still be played by a pretty girl who at the end would, you know, end, end in a, end in a clinch with um with Cinderella or whatever, and you you sort of filtered out the lesbian connotations. that maybe I didn't as a kid. But certainly it was, you know, it sat very neatly within the fun for all the family entertainment, and yeah. I think that was probably true with Vesta Tilly in the 19th century and early 20th century. Um, but it was it was more that that sort of niche charge it might have had for maybe for all its viewers, but for certainly for some of its viewers, Vesta had a lot of very, very ardent female fans, you know. And as she writes in her autobiography, recollections, of uh, one particular fan who followed her around and came to every you know performance until in the end she got so fed up with her that she invited her to, to her dressing room. But in order to sort of deflate her ardour she deliberately received her with her hair in sort of rat's tails and make you know sort of makeup remover all over her face and you know the the fan apparently was taken aback but then declared that she loved her more <laughs> than ever because she'd seen her like this um and I suppose I thought what would that have been you know that might have been a re- very different kind of uh scenario you know what would it have been like um if, if there'd been this sort of charge between the two of them and that's, I guess that's where the start of Tipping the Velvet mm. came from really, you know, Nancy is this ingenue, this oyster girl who sees Kitty Butler and then goes to her dressing room and then, you know, it goes from there.
1: And Whitstable, what made you um, Oh, well, I'd start lived in that. Whitstable mm. as a
2: student. I'd been, I was at the University of Kent and had my own uh, love affair with, my first love affair with, a, with another girl, which was very exciting. We were living in this, the most cold and slightly squalid student house and um, as they all were in those days, but it was right on the beach in Whitstable, um, over in Sea Salter. and it's a very pebbly beach. It's very, very romantic when I think back, because you'd hear the waves and you'd hear this crunching pebbles as people walk down the beach late at night, and you'd have to just stay in bed because it was so cold. Um, so it was a very—I I remember it very affectionately and very romantically, and so it seemed a good, it seemed a good setting for Nancy. Really, it was you know this, this youngster who was going to set embark on this checkered career
1: and did you know where you were going with this book because um, i know in your later novels you you generally understand at least where you're going to end don't you even if yeah you're... i i did, did you actually with this novel?
2: I, yeah when I was, I was finishing off my phd i was cycling backwards towards the british library and um coming up with the with the plot of the story you know which is basically quite a cheesy plot really <laughs> um but, but you know deliberately so because i wanted it to be this sort of i wanted to kind of claim a sort of classic romantic uh, narrative for lesbians, really. Um, so I plotted the whole thing out in advance. I think so much so that when I actually came to start writing it, I started in the middle... I, well, I started with the second section of three because that was the world I knew most. It was the, this sort of uh, Victorian world of uh, rent boys and um, uh, kind of this cross-class charge um, that had really belonged to men in the period, I think, sort of the, the Oscar Wilde world, you know. But then I... I knew that I knew that London a bit so that was where I started and then I went back when I finished that section to part 1 and kind of connected connected it up and then wrote the last section it was very it was a very I mean it's a very straightforward novel and I would if I was writing it now I'd go further with the you know some of the characters and I'd think it through much more and and you know just just pay more attention to all sorts of things but it was you know writing it was just wonderful then because I it was It was sort of me discovering that I could kind of write, and Mm. it was just fun and um, thrilling, I think it still is all those things. Actually, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have a word changed. Actually, I think it's it's oh, fabulous. I wish I could tidy it up. I look at it now. It's the only one I've reread, and it was really quite a bruising experience because it's so untidy and so all over the place. But really. it's so exuberant, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know. And probably if I was to write it now, I would. It wouldn't have that. No. You know? So and there are phrases and senses in it that I still think are really nice, and I probably wouldn't attempt them now because they're a bit purple or you know they're a bit romantic or something. I don't know. So yeah, no, I, I. I I'm very, very fond of it, it's true. And so you were sitting in the British Library writing it?
1: Mainly or um, at home?
2: Mainly at home is what I recall. In my the corner of my bedroom in Dalston is what I can remember. Um because by then I'd I'd finished the PhD and um was unemployed and um not I have to admit, not very hard looking for work. <laughs> um so getting kind of a certain, certain amount of income support and housing benefit. I did odd bits of teaching here and there. But really, I, I just thought this is, the, you know, if I'm ever going to write a novel, now is the time to try. And it seemed like this kind of perfect moment. I was used to having no money. I, you know, I was still young enough that if it went nowhere, it wouldn't it didn't feel like it would be the end of the world. I had no dependents, you know, that sort of thing. It was a lot of things working to make it possible for me to... Living this. in a squat? When we this, first started uh, publishing, you were I in was, a squat. I was, really? I was. well. this was before the squat. Um, so I was still, this was relatively respectable, really, the Dalston days. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was very much, you know, working at working at a desk in the corner of my bedroom, which I did for many years, which actually was absolutely fine. I mean, now I have a nice study, at the top of the house, a nice view of the local gardens and stuff. But actually, it doesn't, you know, all you need, I think, is and quiet and a nice flat surface to work on um
1: but you need um you see I want to sort of think about that young woman of 20 years ago and you because I think you also need you need a drive obviously and so you were prepared to you were obviously sacrificing on some levels I mean okay you were f- fine to give up some mm. creature comforts but nevertheless you had to have some kind of sense that it, a career as a writer would, is a possibility
2: and I did in a small way, and the the reason I had it was from what because of what I was talking about before. You know, this sense of there being a lesbian and gay reading and writing community around me. That you know, some of the books that were that were published by some of those small lesbian and gay presses, they weren't the most ambitious books in the world. You know, and it was exciting that they were there at all. That's what I remember about it. I just read absolutely everything I could, even and even when the you know, the novels or the stories weren't that great. Just the fact that they were talking about lesbians, you know, it was just great. But in a funny way, actually, because... um, Well, because I felt that the bar was relatively low, you know, it it made me feel that I could maybe try and contribute something of my own. Whereas, I mean, if I had... You know, I've often said this, but if I had set out... If I... To be, I don't know, Hilary Mantel or, you know, Angela Carter or something, I just... I never would have written at all. It would have been too daunting a prospect. But I felt... Sort of, there was room for me in lesbian and gay, and feminist publishing. That's what I felt, and that was that was very empowering. And I, I did I did develop a drive then for the writing. I think simply because I found it so exciting. You know, the fact that I could create the story from nothing, and that's still what excites me about writing a novel. Um, that you start with the germ of an idea. And you know, in my case, so sort of three or four years later, you you have this world that you can offer to somebody else, often to complete strangers, and they can enter into this creation of yours. I still find that really exciting, and I certainly remember finding that exciting with Tipping the Velvet. And that that excitement kept kept me writing, definitely. And
1: this, you've often said too, that you wanted to give pleasure to readers, and so your yes. things like the plot and the, well, obviously your characters are brilliantly drawn but you have you you are famous for quite intricate plots as well aren't you
2: yeah I like a good plot I like uh, storytelling is you know I think is a wonderful thing and it's sort of part of what makes us human and we should relish it and celebrate it and certainly especially if you can combine storytelling with a certain amount of lyricism and you know some sort of some sort of kind of intellectual agenda as well I think that that to me is it makes a perfect book and lots of the authors I've admired over the years, people like, well, Dickens is a perfect example of this, you know, somebody who was an absolute genius with language and yet wrote these incredibly pacey stories with wonderful cliffhangers and the most moody kind of scenarios you could, you could you know, imagine. But other writers like Iris Murdoch, you know, she was never afraid of cliffhangers. And Daphne du Maurier, Patricia Highsmith, you know, readers that make you relish Relish the novel you're holding in your hands. That's, uh, sorry, writers, you know, who can make you do that. And that's something I've always aspired to do, definitely.
1: And there's always a conversation, though, isn't there, about somehow plot seems sort of middle brow or. Yeah, it's
2: funny that, isn't it? Maybe it's
1: connected to television or something, People I don't get know. get very it's, snooty about I plot.
2: Agree. I don't know if that's changing because of television, because there's so much good television around at the moment, so much sort of long form narrative. Um, that 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 that's I mean people often say don't they, if Dickens was around now he'd be writing for TV and I think he would because I think it would suit him down to the ground and maybe that will change the respect you know that's given to plotting um, but it's true there's there's been a, I think yes um, I think the nineties actually you know, while I was enjoying all this kind of lesbian and gay stuff there was a sort of more mainstream snootiness really about storytelling although again I think of all those postmodern books like Possession for example which is also a great, a great novel for storytelling so I don't know I think it's a very very basic appeal that storytelling has and I, don't, I, think book, I think literary fiction can't survive without it because unless it's the quality of the writing I mean you don't read Virginia Woolf for, for the plots do you you know you read it for the beauty of the language and the strength of the ideas there will always be literary fiction like that but I think you know fiction always needs a reason for you to keep turning the pages why do we need stories? Why do we need stories? I think it, I think we're sort of genetically programmed to tell stories. I think it's how we make sense of the world. I think it's all about um, you know in order to sort of successfully negotiate the world, you have to be able to put yourself in imaginary scenarios. you have to be able to put yourself in other people's shoes. you know empathy is a great dri- uh, dr- driver of fiction and, uh, and of reading. I think that's you know that's a very basic. Need we have as human beings, and it's it's a great thing. It's something that we need more of. Um, but yeah, I think it's something that's hardwired into us, um, and our relish for storytelling, you know, must go back a long, long way to sort of sitting around the fire, really, and and yeah. elaborating.
1: I'm always interested yeah. in the you know when you do listen to oral stories, they don't tell them the same way no, each time, do they? I no, mean, each time aren't they? That's yeah. a
2: wonderful thing. But that's you know it's a funny thing as a writer sometimes. I talk to readers about if they've enjoyed my books, and they'll say, oh, "I love that bit where," and they tell you a scene, and it's not quite the scene you wrote, but it's the scene they read because it set off things in their heads. And certainly, I've had that experience with books and films. You remember a scene, and then you go back, and it, no, it wasn't quite like that actually. But that's a wonderful thing, you know. Even a, even a book that's on paper, apparently unchangeable, um, will have these these different lives for different people. And what
1: about the um, adaptations? Mm. So, you know, these, ca- these characters, they've just sprung out of your head. Fully formed. No, yes. obviously, you developed them. <laughs> um, but then they're on the screen, for God's sake. Yeah. What does
0: that- when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices up
2: I remember that with Chipping the Velvet, which was the first one I'd had adapted for telly. And I remember exactly that being a very unnerving sensation. And unnerving and exciting. You know, I went along to the actors' read-through where they all sit around in their ordinary clothes long before filming starts and just read through the script. It's a chance for the scriptwriter and the director to time it and things like that. And, um, you know, walking in and seeing these little place names for everybody, Kitty Butler, Nancy Astley, and thinking, oh, my God, this would this would not be happening if it hadn't been for me in my Dalston bedroom, you know, dreaming this up. And then going on set and seeing this world, this extraordinarily busy world of um, filmmaking, where there are loads of kind of beefy men wandering around lugging cables and cameras and things, and thinking none of these people would be being employed on this if, if I hadn't written that book. It's a very... It's to see it breeding things like that is uh, is odd, I'd say. And and then to
1: see the character who inhabits that person, you know, so you have the two young women in. I'm especially thinking about the mm. Andrew Davies ad- mm. TV adaptation. Yeah. And do 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 those actresses sort of start colouring your remem- memory of your original character?
2: I think they probably do a bit. I have to say. Um, and it yes, I remember that being. Odd, but not for very long, you know. I mean, Keely Hawes was did look rather like I'd imagined Kitty, especially in her lovely suit, you know, on stage. Um, but Rachel Stilling wasn't, however, how I'd, ima- how I'd imagined Nancy, who was is blonde in the book, you know, and all that sort of thing. But actually, it's amazing how quickly you get over that because because the adaptation is something different. I mean, it's not mine; it's Andrew Davis's or it's the directors. You know, it belongs not to you but to to the, to the team of people who've created it, really. And so very quickly, you just have these two. Things too tipping the velvet's in your head. I mean, since then I've seen there have been stage adaptations, so that's another kind of um, life that 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 the novel has. Um, But you somehow you just yeah take them you take them on board and that's that.
1: So you are okay for someone else to take over your yeah your creative work.
2: I think you have to really unless Mm. yeah I think um, it's very hard because you have to be pretty ruthless. I mean, I remember seeing the first time I saw a script of one of my books, that was Tipping the Velvet. And, you know, Tipping the Velvet is not a short book. It probably do with a trim, actually. But anyway, you know, and Andrew Davis's script was about 90 pages of sparse dialogue. And it's like, where's all my lovely scenario? And, of course, the lovely scenarios are provided by the costume department and the, you know, the lighting and the sound. And
1: the face. I always think, you know, what takes a writer, you know, three or four pages to show somebody can do in a minute on their face, can't
2: they? Yes, but I think to see that... That, I think to make to turn a novel into that very the bare bones of that script, I think takes a lot of rigor and nerve, really. If you're if you're doing it to your own writing, so it's much easier. I think I think I find it easier to adapt somebody else's book for telling than to adapt one of my own. Mm. But I think it's easier to hand it over to somebody else, um, especially someone like Andrew, you know, who's been doing it for a long time and knows what they're doing. Um, and then it for me it just always became fascinating to see. Uh, you know what decisions a script writer makes, why they might make those decisions. You know what what can work on the page but can't work on the screen has to go. Often it's about cutting down um, the character. You know the the sort of the you know cutting down seven characters into five characters or into four characters, which actually is always a good thing to bear in mind as a writer. I know we've talked about this. Sometimes in a book you have two characters who are really you know doing the same thing. They they can just become one character. Mm. And TV does that a lot. Mm. And sometimes that's a loss um, because what's wonderful about novels is that they can be a bit sprawly, you know, a bit leisurely and they can sort of wander here and wander there. And TV doesn't tend to do that. Um, it, it goes for other effects. Um, so, but, but I've just always found that process of adaptation um, really interesting. You've had very good adaptations I as have. well, haven't you? I have. I've been really lucky.
1: I want to ask you one last question before we go over to your fans' questions, mm-hmm. um, which is about length. I'm thinking about that when you when you brought it up about the length of um, the television versus your uh-huh. novels. Because all of your novels... I know every once in a while you tell me you're going to write a short novel, <laughs> but that never happens. But you do seem to enjoy that, uh, taking your time to really take us into a place and then to really... I sometimes feel like when I finish reading a novel, I know exactly what the skirting boards are like, (laughs) even, you know, what it smells like. Mm. You you obviously enjoy really fully painting the picture, don't you?
2: I do enjoy that, I do. Um, Because I think if you want to, if you want your stories to feel emotionally engaging and emotionally affecting and, you know, punchy, you kind of want them to be rooted, or I want them to be rooted in this very real feeling world. Um, So I I do give... those sorts of details a lot of attention I don't I mean the worst thing a historical novelist can do is to just lay them on with a trowel and just you know show off really so you have to you have to learn a kind of restraint with with historical detail. You know when is the time to use it and why exactly. You know, does it, is it earning its place there? I think that's an important thing to remember because it's not because you know novels are never about the setting. They're about the for me anyway. They're about the emotional dynamic between the characters, and that's not about skirting boards and corsets. You know, but you do need to know those things too, even if you don't use those details. So yes, I like I like being able to um, build build up a world. I guess.
1: I'm going to take us out of your world and into um, people who have asked questions. Okay. Um, and here's, here's a question that really picks up exactly what you've d- described, which is that people read into the novels. So this is Laura Ashton, and she says, I once heard that you changed the ending of The Paying Guess in order to write a more satisfying story. What advice would you give to someone who is also using true crime as inspiration for a novel first of all, did you change the ending
2: I Guess? i didn't i mean i did I wasn't sh- there was a point when I was writing the book where I thought, oh my God, can this possibly end happily for Francis and Lillian because the, what they were going through was so dreadful, and they were so complicit in this crime um but I always, 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 always wanted them to just about scrape, I shouldn't give this away, I suppose, you know, just about scrape through. But, but maybe what the question is about, because about the true crime question, you know, the novel is very, was very loosely inspired by a true crime case, the case of Edith Thompson and Frederick Bywaters from 1922, which is where The, the Pain Guest is set. And, you know, true crimes are a fantastic resource for a historical novelist because they give you this fantastic um window onto very private lives. I know Lisa Apinanesi has talked about this in, in her Varaga book, Trials of Passion. And um they give you lots of incidental details. If you're looking at court transcripts and things like that, they're fabulous. But um but but the paying guests was you know it what well, it just took the dynamic really of the of Edith Thompson's case. She was put on trial for the murder of her husband even though she hadn't Done this at all? Her lover, her male lover, had done it, and they were both hanged. She was hanged for it. It was, it was an extraordinary case, really, and it touched on lots of buttons of the time about class and women. And those were the those were the buttons I wanted to engage with with the paying guests. Um, so it's that to you know to that extent I used it. But actually, I remember feeling quite squeamish even about the slight. The slightness with which I had used the figure of Edith Thompson. I remember talking to you about this in an anxious kind of way near the end of finishing the book. You know, was this an okay thing to do? So I think, I mean, I I think the way I'd done it absolutely was. And I think even if I had based the book much more closely on Edith, that there'd be a way of doing it that would feel okay. But I think it's not, and it's not something to be done lightly. You know, these were real people in the world. They possibly have descendants living now. Edith Thompson didn't. You know, so I, I think if you're going to do it, um, you just need to you know, bear that in mind and be kind of respectful, really.
1: Joe Hamer Smith asks: When you begin a story, are the characters pretty much already formed in your mind, or do they change and evolve greatly from initial conception to the final piece?
2: Um, they can change a lot, actually. Um, I often, I usually have the plots of my novels worked out. If not right at the start, then pretty quickly. Um, you know, once I've started writing, so in a sense, the characters' roles in the novel don't don't tend to change, but um, the way they feel about those roles can change enormously. So it's like they, it's like when I start, they're like chess pieces on a board. You know, rather generic pieces, but through the course of writing it, they become individualised. You know, they become individual figures with. Um, sort of ideas and and feelings Um, and that can change a book enormously so with the little stranger example the book before last there's there's a it's narrated by a country doctor who when i first planned it was a rather sidelined figure he was just going to be this sort of appalled observer of the decline of the family at the big house the heirs but i became much more interested in his relationship with them and he he ended up having a much more central role in the book so that was interesting with the paying guests i mean lillian and francis I think I'd started the novel as a sort of anti-love story in the sense that I wanted them to, you know, to f- to have this affair and then when things got difficult, I sort of thought, imagined their love would kind of crumble away under pressure. But actually, I, I kind of, you know, wrote a first draft like that and I didn't like it. I just, I didn't like them and I, it wasn't quite right. And I ended up p- making it a proper love story. You know, I wanted it to be about them... Um, their their love is put under pressure enormously, but that they they kind of manage to get through. So, yeah, that can change a lot of the characters.
1: Um, Back to Tipping the Velvet. Micah Botha says, Was Nancy in Tipping the Velvet and her relationship with Diana Letheby inspired by the character of Pip from Great Expectations?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, It wasn't, actually, although I can kind of see where that question's coming from, because... Um, I mean, if you're thinking of Pip and Estella in Great Expectations, you know, Pip is this working class boy who falls in love with this haughty, uh, you know, sort of gentry girl. Um, It's all about sort of the eroticisation of humiliation, really. (laughs) And certainly Nancy's relationship with Diana has a lot of that in it too. Um, But no, I don't remember thinking of of Estella, when I was writing about um, Diana, but it's funny because the because Great Expectations is my favourite Dickens novel and has o- o- always had a big influence on me, and it has popped up in my books, even if in ways that are only visible to me. So, for example, in Fingersmith, my third book, there's there's a lot about hands. Mrs. Suxby, who's this baby farmer, has these big hands, and I don't know. And I kept remembering Estella's mother in Great Expectations, who becomes Jaggers' as house made and there's all these scenes it's very crucial that Pip makes this crucial plot connection because he sees her making a gesture with her hands and those hands even in Affinity I think maybe those hands crop up as well so but I think it's you know Great Expectations is a classic story of coming at uh, coming of age you're finding your place in the world growing up making mistakes uh, getting there in the end and of course Tipping the Velvet is that sort of story as well in fact I mean, one of the joys for me of writing *Tip in the Velvet* was that I could take that very classic scenario and just kind of populate it with lesbians. You know, that was <laughs> that was a real kick for me doing that.
1: Um, Peter Edwards says, "This is the question we've we've read many times before, sir. Do you yourself know exactly who Caroline in the S- *Little Stranger* <laughs> saw?" In answering this question, I'm not necessarily expecting you to reveal who it was, merely whether or not you yourself know for certain.
2: <laughs> I could just say yes and leave it at that, couldn't I? <laughs> but it's funny, I have been asked this question many times, perhaps more than any other question that I've had with any of my books, because the novel does have a rather ambiguous ending, which I was very clear about wanting, you know. But I also feel there are quite a lot of clues in it. There's a big clue in the last line of the book, And it's partly because, you know, the novel has a supernatural element, and I felt if there really is something supernatural going on, it couldn't be neatly tidied away at the end of the book. But more importantly, really, it's about the narrator, Dr. Faraday, because he doesn't understand exactly what's gone on, and that's kind of the point of the book. You know, he's increasingly unreliable as a narrator really in 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 quite sort of buried sort of ways but um so he he doesn't know so we in a sense can't know either explicitly but we have to intuit or uh read between the lines (laughs) that's my story and i'm sticking to it anyway (laughs) (laughs) um
1: caroline asks have you ever considered writing a novel set in the present day
2: um, I didn't for a long time, because history really was always my way into writing fiction, and that's well, I was very happy with that. But increasingly, I suppose I've become interested in what kind of novel I would write if I moved into the contemporary world, you know, just as a technical issue, really. What would that be like? What would my voice be like? Um, I'm not sure. W- what it would be like? I've I've sometimes thought maybe a ghost story would be an interesting thing to write with a contemporary setting. It's relatively easy to create a spooky atmosphere with a with a kind of antique setting, but to do it in the modern world would be more of a challenge, and that would be really interesting, I think. So that might be my way in, you know, a sort of gothic way into the present. But it's not something that I'm doing at the moment, and it probably it won't. It might be an I don't know. So I'm not ruling it out.
1: Um, to conclude this section. Would you like to tell us what you are writing?
2: I'm right in the middle of writing my new book at the moment, um, which is set in the fifties, um, early fifties. It's not gay. It's a f- kind of a family story, really, um, it, and it's a bit gothic. That's all I'll say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you very much, Sarah Waters. Pleasure. Congratulations on tipping the velvet. 20th anniversary edition
2: well thank you thank you for the glorious 20th anniversary edition but also thanks for publishing it all at all because you know if it wasn't for virago i wouldn't be sitting here and um i wouldn't have had this you know this this what feels to me like a very lovely organic career with one book growing out of the one before it and tipping the velvet was the start of all that so thank you virago
0: Thanks for listening to this special episode of the relaunched Virago Books podcast. I hope you'll join us again in a month's time for our next episode, which will feature Sarah Dunant discussing historical fiction and much more. In the meantime, please keep in touch and tell us what you think, on Twitter at Virago Books or on Facebook at Virago Press.